Anybody heard any Christmas music or seen any Christmas commercials yet? Anybody? I know a number of you probably have because I know I have seen some and I have heard some already and it's November 15th. I mean, what? Like, we're not even halfway through November. It's not even Thanksgiving yet. And it seems that year after year, the Christmas season is coming earlier and earlier. How about this? Anybody have their Christmas tree up yet? Like the Wakefields. Yes, Northeast, I know you do. Represent. First service, one other family. Second service, one other family. People in your uh, community out there in Chucky and where the Coxes live in Afton, probably like where we live just a few blocks from here, people in your neighborhood probably think, what is wrong with those crazy Wakefields? They have their, uh, they have their tree up. We've had it up for a week already. We have had our tree up 49 days before Christmas actually happens. My wife, by the way, hashtag winning. Actually, uh, for us, I think we just wanted to get it up before we, you know, got into the season and got into the hustle and bustle and didn't get it done. Uh, so, uh, so we're coming up on a couple seasons that are uh, exciting times, good times of friends and family and, 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 and food. For me, there are three things. There are three goods about uh, the Thanksgiving and Christmas season. It's good food. Uh, it's good friends, and for me, typically, it's a good five pounds as well. Uh, a few of you have heard me say this before, um, if you've been here for a while, um, but I want to tell you a little bit about why I get those five pounds on each Thanksgiving. Uh, for me, as far as the food is concerned, when it comes to, to Thanksgiving food, it's all about the sweet potatoes. I know a couple of y'all knew where I was headed with this. It's all about my mom's sweet potatoes. And listen, these aren't just sweet potatoes. These are bourbon sweet potatoes. And for me, as soon as I walk in the door at Thanksgiving and smell them, it's like my mouth starts watering. It's sort of like a tractor beam for me. Uh, they're hypnotizing, and my mouth starts watering as soon as I get in the door because of my mom's bourbon sweet potatoes. So there are a couple thick layers of mini marshmallows. And yes, I'm going to continue to just deconstruct bourbon sweet potatoes, so, so just camp out for a bit. So we've got a couple, two or three layers of mini marshmallows there, and they are cooked just right so that they're sort of, you know, so that they're light, lightly toasted and crispy golden brown on top, and yet at the same time, soft and gooey underneath. The texture of the sweet potatoes themselves are, are not lumpy like the potatoes didn't quite get mashed enough, and they're not so soft and sort of overcooked and sort of, you know, overmixed that it runs through the fork. It's just right. I love my mom's bourbon sweet potatoes. Um, is it okay if I go ahead and call an audible and just uh, dismiss for lunch and we just kind of, <laughs> <laughs> most of you all like, let's go. It's no profound insight. It's no profound insight to say that Southern folks love their food. Am I, am I preaching yet? If you're not from around here and you're new perhaps to this area, it's important to note that there are some Southerners who sort of consider themselves to have the spiritual gift of potlucks. There was a particularly wise poet uh, I came across this week who said, we may live without poetry, music, and art. We may live without conscience and live without heart. We may live without friends. We may live without books. But civilized man cannot live without cooks.
So as I was thinking this week about why I'm looking forward to the season of my mom's bourbon sweet potatoes, it's obviously not about the marshmallows. It's not about the sweet potatoes. It's not really about the smell. And by the way, it has just enough smell in the bourbon sweet potatoes to make you wonder a little bit. You know what I'm saying? For me, the bourbon sweet potatoes are symbolic of something far more important, far deeper, far more meaningfully, meaningful to me personally. When I think of my mom's sweet potatoes at Thanksgiving and at Christmas, they remind me of home. I mean, sure, they taste good. Sure, I enjoy eating them. <laughs> but for me, they're a symbol of a place of safety and of rest and of comfort. Really, for me, they've become a symbol of home and peace. I know that when I get home at Thanksgiving and at Christmas, I'm in a place where there is safety away from the pace and the demands of the day. I know that I am in a place where I am forever loved and accepted. I'm in a place where I can kick off my shoes, put my feet up, and relax and know I'm at home with my mom and dad and they love me. I don't know if you have any memories that sort of fit for you like that. It may not be bourbon, sweet potatoes, maybe blueberry muffins. It may be something else. It may be a certain, a certain area of your home. And maybe, let's, let's be real about this, maybe some of you don't have good memories of home. The common thing about all of us is we long for a place like that. We long for a place where we are loved and accepted that we can call home. So let me ask you this. Do you have a memory of a certain person? A certain person who makes you feel that way? Somebody once said that some folks make you feel at home and others make you wish you were home. You see, friends, we're talking in this series about generosity. And generosity is something that flows from an understanding of the grace of God. Generosity is something that comes from us to others because we understand about what the gospel is and what grace is and what we have in Jesus. So hospitality, hospitality is something far beyond just sharing sweet potatoes and your home, though certainly that could be a great context for it. Hospitality is not just extending the grace of God to others through sweet potatoes and a clean house. It's extending the grace of God to others by extending yourself through your resources in a way that offers the grace of God. You see, in the hands of somebody who loves and follows Jesus, tangible resources aren't just something that tastes good and that look nice. They become expressions, offerings of something far greater than the tangible taste of bourbon sweet potatoes. They become expressions of God's grace. So what kind of person are you? What kind of place is your home? Do you and your life's resources bring others to an experience of this sense of home-like warmth and acceptance? Do you, as a person, make others feel like they are receiving from you something akin to grace?
Those are the questions we're going to answer as we look into this text here today. And at first glance, in this text that we read earlier in Luke 14, at first glance, (laughs) it seems Jesus isn't exactly all that keen and all that concerned on making others around him feel at home. Because he comes in this context and he says some controversial things. But when you read it carefully, I think what you'll see, when you read it with the right lens, you can see that Jesus is actually very concerned with making people feel at home. In fact, we can see that Jesus is actually, in the context here, the ultimate host at a banquet that is the true home. Now, before we jump into verse 7, which we're going to do here in just a second, let me just verbally set the scene for you here a little bit. Jesus had been invited to this banquet. It's a banquet at a bigwig's house. This was quite common for Jesus and his disciples to be in a context with with eating and drinking and banqueting. In fact, in Luke alone, in the Gospel of Luke alone, they can be found doing something like this at a banquet 32 times. And so they're invited to this bigwig's house, huge party, large banquet, serious money and serious power and, and serious social standing here and most likely some really good food, maybe not bourbon sweet potatoes, but really good food. So you've got to understand how big of a deal this kind of a banquet is. <clears throat> this isn't just like picking up KFC on the way. This is, this is something that took perhaps days to prepare. And it probably just wasn't a person or two. This is the kind of context here where we're talking a whole staff of people were preparing this meal. Anybody been to the, the Biltmore uh, house in Asheville? Down below on the Biltmore, you go by room after room after room after room of servants who prepared huge, sumptuous banquets like what we're talking about here. It would have taken days. It would have taken lots and lots and lots of food. So this is a big deal. And a banquet for so many required serious preparation. I want to read you something about all of this that I came across this week. It says this. A banquet for so many requires extensive preparation. Generous hospitality in that context was prized very highly. The best foods, the finest wines, and carefully prepared meats would have been served at a banquet like this. The home of the host would have been a bustle of activity. The servants would have already invited the guests who would be waiting for a second call to be given when the dinner was ready. It would be like an RSVP went out early, days before, perhaps even weeks. And then on the day of the feast, the servants would go out into the village and say, it's time to eat. Let's go. So that's what's going on here. Under normal circumstances, the invited guests would wait eagerly for the festivities begin. Drums may have been used to alert the people that a special festive dinner was being prepared. One would expect a troop of musicians to be present at the feast so they've got their own sort of version of a DJ there. So during the day, long before the time of the meal, the smells of meats would have been filling the country air of the streets in the village. Anticipation would grow about this great banquet, which was a special occasion where many of the people could share their lives and one of their favorite activities of a communal culture like this. During the feast, the village people would have had the opportunity to interact with one another in a festive atmosphere. So so basically, things are hopping. The feast is already going. The music's playing. They're enjoying their time together, smelling good food. And Jesus, the party animal, 
says this. Look at verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. He speaks to the guests first. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, there would have been probably lots of little tables. Most of the time at a feast like this, it'd be three people around a table with the center of the two being the key place. And so people were jockeying for the places of honor already. And he noticed that and says to them, verse 8, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will have to come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place, which is an awkward party moment. This is one of of those moments at the party where everyone's partying, talking, enjoying the, the food and the music. And it's sort of like everybody's having a good time. And then suddenly, you know, that, that needle scratches to stop, the, uh, to stop the music. And everything is silent. And they all look at Jesus, who invited him. And he says this, When you were invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. He says this, here's the principle, verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. There was a longtime preacher in Louisville named Bob Russell. He used to always say, you don't have to tell everybody else things you've done and how amazing you are. Let everybody else discover how wonderful you are. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, for the culture of this day here, Banquets like this, and this is key to the situation that Jesus is watching here. Banquets like this were the marketplace for power and influence and prestige. Banquets like this were where reputations were validated and where social standing was secured. In these banquets... Money was made and business transactions happened. Even today, this kind of sort of social and economic posturing goes on in settings like this. And a banquet like this one here in Luke was the quintessential example, as Jesus is watching all this, of using resources to gain for self. But notice here how Jesus calls calls into question that entire system. He sees this jockeying for social position and he turns it upside down as a way of teaching about using one's resources as expressions of grace, as expressions of God's goodness. Look at verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him. First he talked to those who were invited, the guests, and now he, party animal Jesus, goes straight to the man who invited him. He says, when you give a dinner or a banquet... Don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Now, before we move further, Jesus is not actually prohibiting inviting friends and and relatives at all. What he's using here is this, there's a Hebrew way of saying this. It's a common term. Uh, Basically, it's like saying not so much this, but rather also this. So he's saying here, stop continually just inviting those with whom you are comfortable. 
Stop inviting just your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you return in return and you be repaid. He's saying stop just inviting those who are socially advantageous for you to invite. He's noticing all of this, you know, sort of political and social jockeying for position, the abuse of the resources that's going on here. And he says, look, don't you see what's happening here? Don't you see what this scene really is? And he says, but when you give a feast, verse 13, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Invite those who are in need. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Quick question. Do you and I invite the people who are in need? Or are we so accustomed to what's comfortable for us that we don't even have eyes to see those around us who are actually in need? And listen, start reading through Luke. The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Jesus doesn't name those folks just because they can't see or they're lame or they're crippled. He names them because they are people who are aware of their need. They are symbolic for Jesus of all the people who are, who are in need because they don't have a relationship with Jesus. They've become a Luke representative of that for Him. So what Jesus is saying here is that in this new kingdom where He is King, it is the other's need, not one's social standing, that determines how we give gifts, how we use resources. And friends, the greatest need anyone has isn't to have enough money, It isn't to have limbs that work or eyes that see. Clearly, helpful things. (laughs) The greatest need anyone has is a forever relationship with God. And so friends, Jesus is teaching here that hospitality becomes ministry if our motive is to extend the grace of God. Hospitality becomes ministry, becomes an opportunity to make an offering of something far greater than just food and a clean house. Though those certainly can be expressions of the same. So here we are again. Awkward party moment. Jesus publicly calling into question this whole scene. And someone, you know, has to do something, right? If that moment in the party where somebody's like, can please somebody just tell a joke? <laughs> Does anybody have any cards? It's that kind of moment. And so this is what this guy says in verse 15. This is why he speaks up. He says, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, when this dude heard Jesus being awkward, this guy says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. He grasps for some sort of like, you know, spiritual sounding something to say to kind of just soothe the tension. He's sort of at that moment raising the glass and saying, yeah, that's right, Jesus. 
Isn't it great that we're inside here enjoying the good life and we don't have to worry about the poor, crippled, lame, and blind who are outside there? Can't can't we just move on and and enjoy the time, Jesus? (laughs) But Jesus doesn't let up. Keep looking. Verse 16. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. So he starts this story, this additional story here about another banquet. But he says this, a man once gave a great banquet, a mega banquet, and he invited many. Now this is an invitation to many. Not just the rich and the upwardly mobile. He's saying, you think this is a big banquet? Let me tell you about a real banquet. Verse 17. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. A common expression for servants, even up through the late 1800s in the Middle East, was for the servants of banquets like this to go out and say these exact words, come for the supper is ready. Come, it's time. Come. They would have already RSVP'd to the first invitation. It would have been the day of the the banquet itself. And these servants would say, come, the food is prepared. Let's go. Keep reading. Listen to these three bogus excuses. Verse 18, they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Who buys land without going to see it first? (laughs) Keep reading. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Again, who buys livestock without inspecting them first? Five yoke of oxen is a lot. Verse 20, third excuse. Another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. (laughs) Oh, so now that you're married, a one-night banquet is off the table, right? (laughs) Actually, this is a little bit more of a complicated one. And there's something interesting that we learn about this one here, but this is a little bit more of a complicated, uh, sort of spiritual-sounding excuse from this person who's, who's... being spoken of in the story here, Jesus throws this part in the story to emphasize the point even further. There are a couple passages in the Old Testament uh, in the book of Deuteronomy that talk about uh, being newly married as a valid reason to not go to war for the first year of marriage. So if you'd just been married, you didn't have to go to war for the first year of marriage so you could you know, get on with the business of making babies and having a family. So what this person is saying here What this person is saying here sounds like a valid excuse. (laughs) This person is doing, in the story here, what we always do. When Jesus talks in very stark terms about what the cost is to follow him. We say, well, what about this, Jesus? What about this case over here, Jesus? (laughs) To which Jesus probably says something like, how is being newly married keeping you from coming to a one-night banquet. I told you weeks ago about this invitation. You knew it. And now you're saying you've got another obligation that you've made since then. Your loyalties are divided. So keep reading. After the three excuses, the servant came, verse 21, and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city 
and bringing the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you've commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Go to the underpasses in the open country where the homeless live. Friends, the truth of this passage in the story is that in the hands of someone who knows and loves Jesus, resources become expressions of God's grace. In fact, they become invitations to God's forever banquet. In the hands of someone who knows and loves Jesus, every single bit of your resources can be used to offer something far greater than what it seems on the face of it. This isn't just, hey, come and join my bourbon sweet potatoes in a clean house. That's nice. That may be the context within which godly hospitality happens. It's an environment there, yes. But those can become, if we understand who we are and what we've been given, those become expressions of the grace of God. An invitation and invitations to God's forever banquet. Now listen, friends. If a church can get this somewhat right, if Christians can get some of this right, that is, using our resources as expressions of God's grace to others, as invitations to a forever banquet. If we can get a smidge of this right, we will have a front row seat to seeing lives changed. Let me say it this way. <laughs> if, if a body of believers got this somewhat right, two services wouldn't be half of enough of what we'd need for people who are coming and saying, I accept my invitation. Now, as soon as I say that, I know this room is filled with a bunch of Christians who are conservative, evangelical, Protestant, tightwad believers. I know who you are. And some of you are probably thinking, just trying to pad your numbers, you're trying to build your brand. And, and think, about, I mean, think about all the money it takes to clean a place like this. Not only are you trying to build your brand and, and, and get more people and say, hey, yay, First Christian Church. It's a, it's a drain on resources. Listen, this is a pretty common way of thinking in contemporary Christian circles today. This is what a lot of people say. This is a lot of what a lot of Christians say. Now, I want to fundamentally challenge your thinking about this. If that's where you're coming from. Because you see, this very structure, just like your own home, is fundamentally about being a resource that can be used to invite people to the forever banquet. This building is about hospitality. And we, and we consider that if you're a member here or in a regular tender here, if you've been here four times and you follow Jesus, you are automatically on the connections team. 
You are a part of the welcome team that needs to be saying, we offer this place, this gathering, these people, everything about this as an offering for you to have a relationship with Jesus. Hospitality is why we pay someone to vacuum and clean toilets. What do you do when you have somebody over? You vacuum and clean your toilets. (laughs) This building, though it certainly isn't only about this, but this building is about hospitality. All of our programs, the signs, everything we do is about becoming a people and a context an environment where the grace of God is offered and extended to people. Boy Scouts meet here. Narcotics Anonymous meets here. People learn how to lose weight here three times a week. Baby showers happen here. Wedding showers happen here. Weddings happen here. Funerals happen here. Foster parent training happens here every week. The coffee shop we launched two years ago is about creating an environment where hospitality can happen. An environment that exudes, that communicates the grace of God. Every penny you give here, just like every penny you spend on your own electricity and AC at home, are we preaching yet, is worthy of the cost spent if it's being redeemed for the sake of the gospel. Let me say it another way. (laughs) You don't have the space to even to begin to have as many things going on in your own house as we do here. That's what happens when Christians pool their resources for the sake of the gospel. Larger things happen than you can make happen at your own home. Comma, don't get me wrong, don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to build a case for not doing hospitality in your own homes. Believe me. Believe me. The numbers of people who do hospitality in their own homes is far fewer than it needs to be. And boy, wouldn't it be wonderful if a congregation of people had that kind of vision and they took that on for themselves. But listen, I know the world you live in because it's the world I live in. We struggle to have dinner ready because of the busyness and the frenetic pace and the things going on during the day. So here's my challenge to us. Practice hospitality and learn it here. Doesn't mean don't do it elsewhere. But what I'm saying is instead of treating the structures within which we meet which are not inherently bad, by the way. You sleep under a roof. You, pray, you, play, play, you pay for electricity. Instead of treating the structures within which we meet with automatic suspicion and merely as a drain on resources, please begin to see this place and this people and what happens here. This gathering and these relationships, the study groups, the life groups, Wednesday night dinners, children's programming, youth ministry. Please begin to see the things that happen here as an opportunity to create an environment 
that is about the purpose of extending the grace of God to people in need. If that doesn't happen, if that doesn't happen, keep your money to yourself. You shouldn't be giving it to a place that squanders your resources. But I promise you, we're working hard to ensure that this is a place where we redeem every penny we can for the sake of extending the hospitality and the invitation to have a seat at a forever banquet. Because, friends, this is a place where we learn to be hosts who offer the good news of new life. That's what the body of Christ is. It's where we learn to be hosts who offer the good news of new life. Because in the hands of someone who knows and loves Jesus, resources become expressions of God's grace. Resources become invitations to God's forever banquet. Let's pray.